message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Anybody ever wondered what the good news is? I want to talk to you today again, surprise, surprise, <laughs> about what the gospel is. Why do I speak about this every Sunday? Because I was so confused for years about what the gospel was, and I felt that the gospel I was sitting under did not empower me. I didn't see in my life what I saw in the book of Acts when I heard the gospel. So I really had questions for many years, and maybe you've had questions too. Maybe you're sitting here whatever age you are, and you have questions, I would say to you, do not be afraid of questions. Questions are a very good thing. Like someone once said, contradiction is the cradle for revelation. So, you know, Jesus asked much more questions than he was asked himself because he wanted people to think. So you have questions about God this morning. Don't be disturbed by that, praise God, but allow the Holy Spirit just to use that. Acts 13, and this is a story here where Paul and Barnabas arrive at a city in modern-day Turkey, called Antioch, and they begin to preach the gospel. I want you to see from verse 32, what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to read slowly some of these verses and bring some things out in them about what the gospel is. Because in verse 32 of Acts 13, what Paul says is, we tell you the good news. Oh, here we go. We're going to actually hear from Paul's mouth what the good news is. Listen to this. We tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. That's it. Here's the good news. What God has promised, he has fulfilled. Hey! You see, there's nothing about you and me doing anything in that, is there? What God has promised, he has fulfilled. That is the good news. Now that, when you get your head around that, is so powerful, it actually does something in you. I'll say that again. Paul wrote this. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. You know why? It is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel itself, when you understand it in all its purity, it does something in the inside of you, which is what the prophet Ezekiel promised many years ago. He's, the Lord said through Ezekiel, I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you. Isn't that lovely? I will cause you. Let's read on. Verse 34. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors and his body did decay. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone, say everyone. Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Praise God. I love that last verse. Here's one of the marks of the gospel. It's unbelievable what God has done to the natural mind especially if you've been brought up in church, it's unbelievable what God has done. 
And we need the Holy Spirit to believe it. No natural mind can believe it, you know? So don't be offended or upset at people if they don't seem to receive the gospel. You and I couldn't receive it apart from the Holy Spirit. So what's the answer? Be filled again. Let praises rise from the inside. Be filled with the joy of this gospel so that when you're speaking to people, they may not understand to begin with what you're saying, but they can understand joy. And I want to show you this morning, there's such joy in this passage. It's one of the things that made me think, what's the matter with me? How come the gospel I've heard for years doesn't give to me this level of joy? Because I'm going to show you the level of joy in these people. It's quite remarkable, you know. Beware a reasonable gospel, one that sounds reasonable to you. That's the message that's actually up on the YouTube channel this morning. (laughs) Blinded by a reasonable gospel. Go and have a listen to that, you know, because that's the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and how they were reasoning with themselves so much they couldn't see Jesus right with them, you know. See, a reasonable gospel is something that sounds like if you will do this for him, then he will do this for you. That's reasonable, isn't it? It's not the gospel. That's the gospel I heard all my life. If you, then him. If you will repent, believe, then him. Timmy said it this morning. Little baby can only speak because his father speaks to him first. You can only love him because he first loved us. See, it sounds reasonable to the earthly man whose life revolves around himself. That sounds reasonable to him because his hope has always been in himself. And that's because, as we've seen in recent weeks, when you grow up in a world that doesn't know a savior, all that world can teach you to do is save yourself. Isn't that right? So it sounds reasonable to say, well, if you'll do this for him, then he'll do that for you. That's an earthly gospel. It's not the heavenly gospel. How do you know? No joy. The gospel is hard to receive if your hope remains in yourself because it's not a you first message. (laughs) If you'll first do this for him, he'll do that for you. It's a he first message. Let's read on. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Picture that in your mind. Church is over. I'm getting into my car and there's a crowd of people following me. Hang on, hang on, hang on. (laughs) Can we ask you something? Okay. They followed him and they talked with him. And he, Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Oh, I think that's a really important verse. What does that mean? How could Paul and Barnabas turn around and tell people who just heard the gospel half an hour ago to continue in the grace of God? Are you ready for this? You can't continue in something you're not already in. These people had just heard the gospel and as far as Paul and Barnabas are concerned, you're already in the grace of God. Now continue, continue in the grace of God. You can't continue in something unless you're ready in it. These people had heard the message and they felt within them a joy, an excitement. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't get their heads around it, but they had questions. And that joy carried them down the street going, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And you see, that's a sign of the grace of God. The grace of God had already been imparted to them. They were already having their eyes fixed on Jesus. They couldn't explain this joy they felt, but certainly what they were getting was It wasn't about your performance for him. It's about what he has done for you. Here's the good news. He's done it. He's done it. And he's done it. And Jesus being raised from the dead is the sign, the public sign that he's done it. Praise God. So 
they were already being impacted by the grace of God. To continue in the grace of God is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus as your Savior, not you. What does this world have you to look at? Examine yourself, look at yourself, sort yourself out, do better, pray more, give more, attend more, do, 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 do. Where's your eyes? It's on yourself. To continue in the grace of God is have your eyes lifted off yourself and onto Jesus Christ. It's so beautiful. I remember once I was in Belfast. It was the first time and the only time I ever saw David Wilkinson preach. And uh, he preached a, a gospel message and many people responded. And then he, he, he did something unusual, you know. And I always remember what he said. He said, you know, normally we have people go around and give out cards and you're to put your name and address on this card and we'll follow you up. He said, today I'm not going to do that. I feel the Holy Spirit saying, if this is real, what's happened in your life, we don't have to follow you up, you'll follow us up. That's a sign of the grace of God. The grace of God. Grace of God carries you. The grace of God empowers you. You see, all boasting is put out of the window by the grace of God. It's all by grace, you know. What I'm saying is, when the gospel is understood and proclaimed in all its purity, there's power. There's the grace, the empowering of God in the message to lift you out of yourself, out of your dependency on yourself and all the misery that goes with being your own savior. <laughs> it's the most miserable place in the world to have to save yourself, praise God. Let me say something else. The grace of God is not a thing apart from God. I can't, if I'm God, I can't, Mike, here, take this. I can't give Mike the grace of God if I'm God. You know what John said? Moses could do that. Moses gave the law. But grace and truth came in Jesus Christ. See, it's an idea that came about in the medieval church that grace could be dispensed out as something apart from God. That almost like we're now the guardians of grace and the grace will be given to you through the sacraments. And if you don't behave yourself, we're going to withhold the sacraments from you. You see, we can do now, we can control you. You've got to come to us to get the grace of God. Here's what Jesus said about the grace of God. Holy Spirit's like the wind. Anybody ever put the wind in a box? Nobody knows where the wind comes from and nobody knows where the wind's going. You see? You're not going to try and separate the grace of God from the presence of God. When you understand that the grace of God is his presence, you'll stop getting afraid of the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness as our father. Godliness is our father. The grace of God reveals to you who you are and you become who you are by believing, not by your efforts to separate yourself from your past life. The grace of God is nothing less than the divine influence, his very spirit, his very life. I always remember Tim Jack standing here years ago saying, do you know the Holy Spirit was at work in your life years before you give him permission to be so? Isn't that beautiful? So when you're going out there and you're trying to share the gospel with someone, remember, a Holy Spirit's ready to work in that person's life, especially if you've been led to talk to that person. Now, I'm not saying you should, if you've been carried by the Spirit, you probably won't talk to everybody because some people will trample you. <laughs> okay? I mean, Jesus said that to his disciples, didn't he? He said, now, knock on the door, okay? And say, when you knock on the door, when they open the door, say, peace be on this house. And if your peace comes back in your face, move on. But if your peace remains... Yeah, then go and follow it up, you know, because the grace of God has gone on before you. You follow the grace of God. Praise God. Let's read on, verse 44. On the next Sabbath, this is a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. Wow, the whole city? Why such a crowd? 
Crowds don't turn out for advice. They turn out for news. Why do we see such small crowds these days? Because we have diluted down news to mere advice. A whole week had passed since Paul had spoken. Now a huge crowd gathered to hear him. Why? Because it wasn't advice that was sweeping through that city. It was news. And that news was exciting people and challenging people and astonishing people. And they, they could hardly believe it. They said, I've got to come and hear this for myself. That's why there was a crowd. Because the news carried that power. Listen again to the announcement that was going through the city. We tell you. God, what God has promised, he has fulfilled by raising up Jesus. So Jesus being raised from the dead was the announcement from heaven that God himself had now done for people what the law could never do. The resurrection of Jesus was the public announcement that God had dealt with their sins and the root of all their sins, their separated life, by opening a way for whosoever who desires to share his life to live not just for him but with him and in him and from him. That's a totally different life. Communion with God. The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. The way is open. The way is open. Now, if you want to hide in the dark and live your by-yourself life, which is death, you're free to do so. But the way is open. The way is open for you to live for eternity because you receive the life of God, which is an eternal life. It's so beautiful. So the gospel was the announcement that Jesus rising from the dead was a game changer. No longer did men and women have to live as if God had left them to save themselves by their lives. No longer did they have to live by faith in themselves and their religious performance. No longer have to, did they have to believe in themselves. But only had to believe in the works of God. So why did such crowds turn out? Why was there joy and anger in equal measure? What news could possibly affect cities in that way? And I want to tell you, here's one way of expressing it. It was the news that religion had been abolished. I'll say it again. The gospel is the news that religion has been abolished. But you know what I want to tell you this morning? That's not even the half of it. It's so incredible. Everlasting life is now so freely available that whosoever would receive Christ as their life before God, it isn't just that religion has been abolished for you. Death has been abolished for you. <laughs> no, I... I need to read this because this is so extraordinary that unless you read it, you won't believe it's actually in the Bible. So put your finger there in Acts 13 and turn over to 2 Timothy 1. I'm going to read something. And I'm going to read it from the King James uh, Version, which I think is very, very clear. You know, this is so extraordinary. It explains why Paul quoted the prophet Habakkuk when he said, this is so incredible that you won't believe it even if you're told it. That's the level of unbelievability of the gospel. God is so good, you're not going to believe it unless you actually are told it. And even if you're told it, you're going to struggle to believe it. Look at this in 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. It says this, speaking of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. Oh my goodness. And has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, I looked up that word abolish in the Greek. It's a katargio. It means to abolish, to render entirely useless, to destroy, 
may say in your translation, he destroyed death, to make no more, to vanish away, to make void. What sort of crowd do you think would gather in the center of Derry if a rumor went around that death had been abolished? <laughs> now you're getting a crowd, aren't you? Now you'll get some sort of crowd, praise God. Can you see, all I'm saying is that the gospel is so much bigger, so much better, so much more powerful than I am presently able to take in. And that's actually scriptural. Jesus said that to his disciples, I have much, much more to tell you, but you're not able to take it in. But when the Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. You see, when the Holy Spirit reveals a truth to you, you grow on the inside in your capacity to receive more. I think, Donna, you were alluding to that even in times of praise this morning when you're talking about when you're praising the Lord, you find an appetite grows. Your capacity in the inside grows. Do people experience that on a Sunday morning when you're praising God? Something on the inside of you is growing. In one sense, what's happening is your perspective is rising. You're beginning to see things from God's perspective. You walked in here with the world's perspective on all your troubles. You know what all your family are saying? You know what the bank's saying? You know what the doctor's saying? You know what everybody else is saying? And everybody's advising you what you need to do to save yourself. You start to praise God. You start to come into the presence of God. In other words, and that's not in a building. It comes from the inside. From the inside. When those rivers start to flow, and what brings those rivers out? The gospel. When people start to speak to us, when we start to speak to each other, something beautiful begins to happen. Your perspective begins to rise. And you see, in fact, that what can death do to you? The death touches a child of the light, death is extinguished, and that child lives on forever. Death cannot touch you, praise God. It's, it's just something so beautiful. And God wants us to be so animated by that, so changed by that. This is what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Do you remember this in Ephesians 3? He said, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Oh my God, that's a big measure. <coughs> that's a big measure. How do we get filled up to that measure? Look at it again. Being rooted and established in love may have power. What's that? That's the gospel. To be rooted and established in the gospel is to be rooted and established in his love for you. Whereas maybe you grew up in church for years being rooted and established in your love for him. I was rooted and established in my love for him. Failing, you need to do this. You need to do that. Are you sure you're doing it enough? Do it again. It doesn't work. Try it again. Try it again. Work a principle. Do something. Do, 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 do. And what do you do? You live your whole life waiting for a better day. Hope deferred makes the heart. Oh, we're learning these scriptures now. But a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. Oh, praise the Lord. We have come to the tree of life. Our dreams have been fulfilled. We're awakening to it, praise God. Every time we hear the good announcement that what God has promised, he has provided by raising Jesus from the dead, we are being more and more rooted and established in love. His love for us, not our love for him. Michelle quoted that last week, actually, from the Apostle John. He wrote this, this is love. Not that we loved him. I love that verse. This is love. Not that we loved him. All my life I was told, love God. No, this is what it says. This is love. Not that we loved him. <laughs> but that he loved us and gave his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. Not that we loved him. The gospel is not about our love for God, but his love for us. And such a message roots and grounds us in his love for us, not our love for him. So much so, we find ourselves growing in our capacity to take in more and more and more of this amazing truth of what God has done through Christ. 
So Paul and Barnabas, this proclamation that Jesus rising from the dead is the evidence of God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He saved us from a life lived apart from him. That's called death. Christ has saved us from that life. Praise God. He saved us. It's so beautiful. Praise the Lord. We grow in our understanding of this. Praise the Lord. Religion, self-effort, is believing in your life for him. I'll say it again. Religion, which we define as self-effort, is believing in your life for him. The way, which is what early Christians were called, the way what God, is that God has provided through Christ is to believe in his life for you. <clears throat> Religion, you believe in your life for him. The way, you believe in his life for you. So, we're talking about the joy of the people, the joy and the excitement of these crowds. But I want to show you one more proof in this passage, in fact, that the message that Paul and Barnabas were bringing was not a religious message, okay? It was not a message about self-effort. Just look at the account of the names of the people who opposed this message. Look down to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> look at the people who got Paul and Barnabas thrown out of the city. Look at the last paragraph from verse 49. It tells you who they were. This is verse 49. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing woman of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So Paul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I was, I was amazed when I read that, that line again who were the people who opposed this message? The God-fearing woman of high standing. Now, I can understand woman of high standing, but why God-fearing? Does that not strike you as strange? The literal Greek there calls them the devout woman, the devout and honorable woman. Why? Why were they so opposed? Because then and still today, a people who fear God and desire to please him, a people who take sacrifice and discipline and religious observance seriously, a people who have made great sacrifices for God over many years, to them, his gospel of grace sounds like a license to sin. That's what it sounds like. It's always sounded like that. If it sounds like that, it's a sign you're listening to the gospel. You see, it makes no sense to the natural mind. To a mind that's always been believing that it's down to me, to make myself acceptable, this gospel sounds like I, have, I can free reign to do what I want. That's what it sounds like, you see? Until you, because you don't understand that he never asked you to do it. He said, I'm going to keep my spirit in you. When you understand that the Christian life is not your life for him, but his life in you, it begins to make sense. But when you don't know that, it can only sound like a license to sin. That's how you know you're hearing the gospel. If you don't believe me, listen, I'll, I'll quote this wonderful preacher called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was the... Uh, minister at Westminster Chapel in London for 30 years, one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, he wrote this. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you're saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will rebound all the more to the glory of grace. If my preaching and my presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, it is not the gospel. Are you disturbed? Are you perplexed? Are you anxious about the gospel of grace? Good, you're supposed to be. It makes no sense to the natural mind. Absolutely not. It is scandalous. That's why it attracts the crowds. 
And when you try and dilute it down and make it more respectable and more reasonable, you lose the joy, you lose the power. Because everybody believes that they have to save themselves. But who believes in a savior? Who believes that it's been done for you? Praise God. That's the scandalous gospel. Oh, it's so beautiful. To people who've made great sacrifices for God over many years, the gospel of his grace can sound like a license to sin. And that's because any message that doesn't appear to involve me doing something about the sin in my life sounds downright reckless to those of us who spend years watching ourselves, making sure that we don't sin too much. Can you see that? It sounds reckless. Now that's exactly how Jesus described how the elder brother felt about the father ministering grace, ministering acceptance to the prodigal son. The elder brother thought his father's actions were nothing less than reckless and disgraceful. The elder son thought this, that lad doesn't need forgiveness and acceptance. He needs to join me here in the fields and put his back into it a bit more and earn his way to that table like I've been doing for years. You don't start from the party. That's what the elder son was thinking. This is not right. This cannot be right. You don't start from the party. You start from the fields and you work your way towards the party. And then he said to his father, by the way, father, I've been working my way towards that party for years and I haven't got there yet. Why didn't you think I was worthy of celebrating? Do you remember we cried out to the father? That's what he was crying out. Why didn't you think I was worthy of celebrating? Do you know what the father said to him in effect? Son, I have always thought you were worthy. That's why I give you everything. Right at the beginning. And you're always with me. You just didn't see it. You just didn't see it. Here's the reckless, scandalous gospel in all its glory. God thinks you're worthy of giving his life to, so he did. Come on, anybody say amen in this church this morning? God thinks you're worthy of giving his life to. Now, no religious person thinks you're worthy of his giving his life to. God thinks you're worthy of giving his life to, so he did. This is called the good announcement, the euangelion. God has done it. And Jesus rising from the dead is this symbol to the whole world that he has done it. He has not waited until you improved yourself or got to your best day. On your worst day, he give you everything. To completely remove the idea from you that you could make him a better God by behaving yourself better. No, you're not going to make Timmy a better father by behaving better. He's just going to love you because that's what love does. Isn't that right? For his children. Love comes in person. Love gives and gives and gives and gives and lays down its life. And that's what love does. And God is love. God thinks you're worthy of giving his life to, so he did. And that's not advice, that is news. And it's news on such a scale that it's got the power to awaken those who are dead to God as he truly is. So that they may see the true knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He always thought you were worth giving everything you had to. For he is love and love can think nothing else. Think of your children. You and I, actually, are the ones who thought we're not worthy. For our life in the first Adam was born from a lie. The lie that God had withheld himself from us and requires us to make ourselves worthy. In other words, the lie that God has left you to save yourself. Now, you might say, well, Philip, where in this passage does it say that? I'm going to show you. Where does it say here that religious people rejected the gospel of grace because they rejected God's opinion that people are worth dying for? How do you know that these people didn't believe they or anyone else were worthy in God's eyes, worth him giving all he had to? Look at verse 46. It says it right there. 
Look what Paul said to the religious leaders who opposed the message. Verse 46, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and consider yourselves unworthy. That's the problem here. <laughs> you consider yourselves unworthy and everybody else unworthy because you don't have the love of God in your heart. And God doesn't condemn us for that. He knows why that is. Because we've been robbing a world that teaches you to save yourself. We're under a lie. It was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiated and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Praise God. So I guess this morning I'm sharing that because for many years I had questions about the gospel. Uh, and the biggest question I had was, why isn't the gospel I'm hearing empowering me? Why is there a lack of empowerment in the gospel I've heard? And the reason I believe now is because of the way I was hearing the gospel, because of the, of the, the way my mind thought about myself and about this life. The spirit of the world, really, which points to you all the time. The way I was hearing the gospel, I was hearing it as good advice, not good news. I was hearing it as a message about what God wanted me to do for him, rather than a message about what he had done for me. I was hearing it as a message of what might be rather than as an announcement of what is, praise God. You know, we've spoken many times about the euangelion, how that word came from the ancient world where a man would arrive at a city, a messenger would arrive at a city with the news of whether the battle had been won or lost. In other words, this city was going to die or this city was going to live. And the announcement, the euangelion, that the battle had been won, that brought absolute amazing joy to that city because they understood that they had just passed from death to life. And when they went looking for a word to describe the gospel, where are we going to find a word in the Greek that's going to describe the level of joy, that's going to describe an announcement that people have passed from death to life? We have to use this word. <laughs> Listen to this. No messenger in the ancient world arriving at a city with a euangelion ever, ever brought advice. They brought news. And when the gospel in this country is restored from advice to news, oh my Lord, oh my Lord. But see, judgment starts at the house of God. How can I speak to someone like that if I have not received it myself? So do me a favor, never tell me I need more faith. Give me more gospel. Tell me again about what he's done. Tell me again about how Jesus rising from the dead is a sign that God has done everything that he said he'd do. Tell me again that I could never do it by myself, and he knew I could never do it by myself, so he never left me to do it by myself. Tell me again the good news that he never even left me to believe by myself, but he even gives his spirit to believe, which comes in the proclamation of the truth. Praise God, that God is that good. The gospel is the good announcement that God has not left us to save ourselves, for Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension is God not leaving us to save ourselves. <laughs> it's so good, isn't it? And he's here. He's here by his spirit to help us. And he understands when we have questions. I had questions for many, many. I couldn't even articulate this for many years, you know. Remember Michelle said something here last Sunday. She said, this didn't happen to me overnight. It's taken 50 years, you know. See, salvation is instantaneous. But working it out... <laughs> Remember, not working it in. Work out your salvation in absolute amazement. If the gospel doesn't amaze you, you haven't heard it properly. If it doesn't take your breath away, you haven't heard it properly. Guilty feet ain't got no rhythm. Who sang that? George Michael, you know? He must have known the gospel, you know? 
Guilty feet ain't got no rhythm. So here's what God does. He's removed your guilt. What the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do because the guilt remained, Jesus Christ has done. His blood was enough because there's no more guilt. Praise God. And, you know, let me finish by saying this. I'll give you two examples of this. What I'm saying to you today is joy. The level of joy that transforms you only comes from news. It doesn't come from advice. If there's a lack of joy in my life, I'm understanding that I've slipped back from thinking of the gospel as advice rather than news. Somebody slipped me in there. Somebody's saying, well, Philem, yeah, you're right. It's about 99% advice, but then it's 1% you. No, 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 don't do that. Don't let anybody slip you in there. You know why? How will you ever know you've done enough? How will you ever know you've done enough? Praise God. I... Um, Here's my examples. <laughs> I was really hoping Ireland would win the World Cup in the rugby. I was, so, I was so hoping that, you know. I think I was telling you, I was up on my feet shouting at the TV what day it was, you know, all those men in green never managed to get over the line. So I have to ask you to imagine something because it's not going to happen now. Imagine Ireland did win the World Cup. What would happen in Dublin when they got home? What do you think, Mike? Big celebrations. They'd probably have an open-top bus what do you think? Open top bus, yeah, yeah. Do you think as many people would turn out as turned out for Jack Charlton's losing team? I don't think so, but, but there'd still be a good crowd, you know. Many thousands of people would turn out, you know. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that the Irish government is, is caught in the hop. They didn't actually expect the team to win, and they haven't booked a bus or a parade. In fact, there are other state occasions which means that there can't be one. And so they quickly have to come up with a plan, so here's what they decide to do. They, decide, they say this, um, listen everybody, we can't have the victory parade after Saturday, so we've decided to have it on the Wednesday before the match. Here's our plan. If everybody will turn out and cheer as if they've won, we'll give them such a boost that they'll probably go and win. So they have a big marketing campaign say, called We Believe, and they exhort everybody to come out and celebrate on the Wednesday before the match as if Ireland has won. How many people do you think are going to turn out? <laughs> And the people who do turn out, do you think their joy is going to be anything, anything like the joy of the crowd who are celebrating the finished work? Nothing like it. Here's my message. There is no substitute for news. The joy that news brings cannot be substituted by the joy that advice brings. There's no substitute for it. It's amazing. I was perplexed when I began to get this revelation. I think I've told you this many times. I was perplexed. Being perplexed, being scandalized, being afraid, being nervous about the gospel of grace is a very good sign that you're hearing it properly. I know many people down the years, some people have even left the church because they've been nervous about the gospel of grace. That's a very good sign. You know when the sheet came down from heaven to the apostle Peter with all those unclean animals on it, and three times the Lord says, stop it. Stop calling unclean what I have cleansed. The Bible says Peter was perplexed. I looked up that word perplexed. You know what it means? It means he was thrown into doubt. He thought, my God, have I even understood this? Perplexed. If you're perplexed, that's a very good thing. That's a sign, you know. So I got very perplexed when I began to hear this message. And I imagined conversations, especially in church, you know. I'd begin to preach this and somebody would say to me, oh, so you're just saying we can do what we want. That's what you're saying. And my reply was, no, no, I'm not saying you can do what you want. And the Holy Spirit always checked me and said, Phelan, that is what I'm saying. I thought, I don't understand. What do you mean? I want them to do what they want. What do you mean? I'll tell you what he meant. Yesterday was our wedding anniversary. 34 years married. Now, don't clap yet. Wait till you hear my illustration first. Imagine if I turned around to Nicola yesterday and I said, now look me in the eye. I want you to tell me the truth. 
Why did you marry me? And Nicola looked back at me and said, you really want to know the truth? England was in a hell of a place to live and I just wanted to move to Ireland. You married me because you were afraid of the alternative? But, but I wanted you to want me. I want you to do what you want. Or else it's not love. Can you see what God's saying? I want you to do what you want. That's what the Holy Spirit meant when he said, yes, I want them to do what they want. Here's what they don't understand yet, though. When they know me, their wants will change. When they know how good I am. So you see the importance of not diluting down how good he is, not diluting it down to make it more respectable, to make it more reasonable, so it doesn't offend uh, church people. Don't do that. Give it in all its glory. Proclaim him as generous as you can be. I promise you this. When you stand before him one day, you will not find him to be less generous than you thought he was. The power is in the proclamation that Christ being resurrected from the dead is God giving you everything you'll ever need, sharing his very life with you. And he doesn't ask you to do one thing except believe, but how are you to believe if nobody tells you? And that's where we're here today. Praise God. To be filled and filled and filled with the praises of God, the revelation of how good he is that we can't but speak because the love of God compels us. And when we speak, it's not in condemnation. It's not an instruction. It's news. It's news. Thank God we don't have to preach instruction. Paul said, you have 10,000 instructors. Enough instruction. We want news. We want fathers in the house, not instructors. Praise God. Let's bow our heads. Praise you, Jesus. Father, I just thank you for every person here today and for all those listening uh, to this message. I thank you that they are loved and loved and loved with a love that they have not yet understood or received. But Lord, I just thank you that every time we hear this message on the inside, we're growing. Our capacity to know you is growing and you're so gentle and you're so patient. And I pray, Lord, against every lie at work in people's lives this morning, every voice that spoke over you and said you should try harder to do better if God will find you worthy. I declare the gospel to you. Christ Jesus is God finding you worthy for salvation. Jesus Christ is God's view and opinion of you, that he thought you were worth dying for and worth giving everything for. And when by the grace of God you receive his opinion, his doxa, his glory, as he promised you would, then you will find yourself looking at everybody in the same way, that you will see there is somebody who's worth everything to God. And it will change the way you speak, it'll change the way we think, it'll change the way we pray, it'll change the way we live. And we're growing in that. We're growing in that. And Father, I just thank you for the amazing growth in our lives. I thank you for the change. I thank you that we're not ashamed of this gospel, for we have discovered it to be the power of God to change us from the inside. We declare this in Jesus' name. Praise God.